This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Susan Deacon and I'm very pleased to be your chair for this event today. As some of you here will know, this week, ballot papers will start going out to Labour Party members around the land so that they might choose their next leader. A new chapter in Labour's history. Probably then quite a good time for us to reflect on what's gone before. And I can't really think of two better people to help us do that reflection than our guests here today, David Walker and Polly Toynbee. Many of you... That's a very good start. Many of you will be very familiar already with their work. They have without question been two of our foremost commentators and analysts over the years, not just on politics, but in wider matters of public policy and public services. Polly will be very well known, I'm sure, to many of you through her regular columns in The Guardian and frequent appearances in broadcast media. Uh, David, too, has uh, had... a accomplished career in journalism, one that he uh, left a couple of years ago to become the communications director with the Audit Commission. One suspects he must have been getting something right since David Cameron has now decided to abolish that body. <laughs> Polly too, of course, was previously the social affairs editor with the BBC. So between them, they bring a very rich mix of perspectives to bear on this subject. They have already published together two previous volumes on the track record of new labour in government. The last book, Unjust Rewards, uh, proved to be a very prescient piece, looking at the extent of inequality in Britain today and shining a light on the excesses in Britain's boardrooms that have become all too well known to us since. In their new book, which will shortly be with us, called The Verdict, they now look on the new Labour track record <laughs> and give us, I think, a very hard-hitting but cool-headed analysis of what new Labour did and did not achieve in government. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my very great pleasure to welcome here today Polly Doinby and David Walker. Th thanks very much, Susan, and, th and thank you. Before we get going, uh, two counts uh, of fraud have to be admitted. One, a major offence at a books festival. As Susan said, the book isn't out yet. It'll be out on the 7th of October. Still, we know that won't stop us from having uh, a lively session. We've been in Edinburgh before, and we know what kind of audiences uh, you are. The second offence takes us back, perhaps, in the mists of time. Some of you may remember the phrase, cool Britannia. Hoxton clubs, hot Brits, Damien Hurst, very much associated with the very early days of the Blair government in 1997. Since then, however, Blair and Brown spent a lot of time worrying about the nature of Britishness. Indeed, Gordon Brown duly revived suggestions as to what Britishness in the modern world might consist of, and he uh, actually suggested uh, planting the Union flag in people's uh, suburban gardens, a British motto he proposed at one stage on every uh, school or public building. However, the point is here we are in Edinburgh with a book, I, we have to acknowledge, the main focus of which is uh, England, 
But, and we'll come on to this briefly later, devolution is very much part of the Labour story, for better and for worse. Well, by now you've probably read quite a few other books, whether it's David Blunkett, whether it's Chris Mullin, um, Mandelson, who's, who's here tonight, Tony Blair, whose account comes out later this week. Uh, and brace yourselves for many more diaries, apologias, self-justifications from ministers uh, from the previous Labour regime. Now, the difference with our book is that we try to strip away the spin, the personalities, the drama, the Westminster uh, excitements and whirlwinds, and we stick to the facts. Uh, this is an audit of what they actually did. Uh, it's very tempting to try and understand labor in terms of people, personalities, in particular, the mighty, almost heroic melodrama of the Blair Brown schism. But uh, we try to take all of that away and just look at the hard outcomes. Uh, and when we do that, we find that those things actually mattered very little. There was far less difference between Blair and Brown than might have seemed at the height of all of that. And in our book, you will find, issue by issue, an analysis of what they actually did. We wanted our book to be a balanced uh, scorecard on Labour 1997-2010. Um, and at a certain point today, we'll actually come clean on, you know, it's to narrow things down, but say out of a scale of 10, you were to give the government the figure. Before that, though, uh, it's going to be dark, so I'm going to have to ask you to shout out. Actually, you, we need the lights uh, up. No, I don't know that, because we can get people to shout. <laughs> it would be very interesting to get your sense. If we had to judge, I know we live in an X-factor age, and that does, to some extent, trivialise things, but if we had to judge, <laughs> if we had to judge the performance of that government over the 13-year period, I wonder what scores you might give. Just for the sake of the argument, who would say, on a score, a scale of 1 to 10, less than 3? Shout out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hands up, we've got lights on now. All right, Un under three. <laughs> Ten is high. Okay, three to five. Above five. Ooh. This is, this is a, this you better is try this. This is counterintuitive. Okay, you know, above eight. <laughs> so it looks like um, between five and eight. Uh, has it. Anyway, let's briefly present to you some of our pluses and minuses and see if they accord with your sense uh, of what, uh, what happened. Well, I think we'd have to start with Iraq because I think Labour's record is uh, indelibly marked by that war. It destroyed its reputation in many ways and it broke Labour's spirit. I would add in inequality. Um, Britain uh, became less fair in 13 years of, of Labour's time. There were 600,000 fewer poor children, which was quite an achievement. Um, there was a great attempt to redistribute, but it was running up a down escalator all the time as huge economic forces were pulling towards more and more inequality. Uh, Labour did try hard, but it slid backwards slightly. We're here in Edinburgh. Surely devolution has to be accorded one of the principal achievements of the Labour government. The institution which you were formerly an ornament of did represent the restoration, <laughs> the restoration to this country of self-government. Um, ditto to some extent with a, a, an assembly without full legislative powers in Cardiff and still pending final settlement, obviously, 
uh, an elected assembly in Belfast. The Human Rights Act, this is on the plus side again, 1998. Our friend Peter Hennessy, the constitutional uh, historical expert, spoke about a series of constitutional measures as significant in their way as what was accomplished in England after the Glorious Revolution, so-called, of 1688. But, Hennessy added, you could never quite hear them weaving a convincing tale. It was always a patchwork. I would add in the Freedom of Information Act, uh, opening new windows onto government. I would add in civil partnership, something that was certainly never in Labour's manifesto. Negatively, Labour accused of fomenting, uh, growing an intrusive state, the attempted creation of identity cards, the extension of CCTV, the DNA database, the regulation of the interception of communications act, uh, the tension without charge, the attempt by the previous government to extend that to uh, 90 days that didn't succeed, the great extension of the prison population, uh, increased by nearly 33,000 in England and Wales at least between 97 uh, and the beginning of uh, this year. So that in the UK, the prison population was proportionately higher than in Burma or China. But then, on the positive side, there's arts funding. Look at us here, the huge booming of arts events. Say nothing of the booming of literary festivals. Arts funding was up by 70%, and it has really been a golden age. Free museums and galleries, uh, public spaces far better, brighter, public parks far better, centres of cities regenerated, winning back some of that old Victorian pride. I'd look at the health service and say in England it's been very, very much improved. Cancer and heart survival uh, rates are hugely up. Waiting lists right down, almost uh, obliterated, which is extraordinary. I would add in the creation of NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, for the first time providing an open, rational, rationing system for what treatments and drugs should be provided. Mortality from all diseases again, uh, England and Wales, fell by a third between 1997 uh, and 2000, the end of 2007. Again, you can't attribute that all to spending on the NHS or the Labour government, but it is a fact uh, of our times. Again, on the negative side, however, you look at the flip-flopping of the previous government on illegal drugs, declassifying, then reclassifying cannabis, the sacking of Professor David Nutt from the Drugs Advisory Committee because he said things the government didn't like to hear, Trident, a defence budget stretched by Labour's commitment in 2006 to uh, uh, build new uh, vanguard submarines, massive failure, we would say, on electoral reform, the failure to go forward with more proportional elections to the House of Commons when proportional representation was introduced under devolution and indeed in London for the elections of the Greater London Assembly, the constitutional botch that is the House of Lords where still sit 26 bishops of the Church of England, a church attended on a Sunday morning by fewer than 3% of the English population and as well as them, 92 zombie hereditary peers <laughs> who still are empowered to choose from their, rather choose not from their mids, but from Burke's peerage, a replacement when one of those 92 peers died. In other words, an incomplete reform of the upper chamber of the uh, London uh, Westminster Parliament. A most serious charge uh, would, with disastrous consequences would be the 
kowtowing to the overweening power of finance and the neglecting of manufacturing until Labour's very last months, really, when there was a sudden reconversion to the idea that we ought to make something. Um, allowing a great house price bubble to take off was disastrous economically, disastrous socially, and even during uh, the greatest house price price there's ever been, somehow or another, not managing to build any more houses, though you would have thought there was a great incentive to do so. Tax policy, uh, the abolition of the 10p tax rate was a, a, a shameful disaster. Um, why was the 50p tax rate not added until, well, till after Labour had actually left, left, virtually left power? Uh, and what about cutting capital gains tax to just 10%, uh, again, allowing wealth at the top to roar away? Just up the road from here in 2005, the, the Glen Eagle Summit, whatever you may have thought of them, there were Blair and Brown standing shoulder to shoulder, committing the United Kingdom to programmes of overseas development aid of a kind no previous administration had done. And indeed, under Labour, the, age budget, the aid budget did double, uh, at least by 2005, since when it's probably increased uh, more. But although Labour committed itself to reaching the United Nations target of 0.7% of GDP going into third world aid, that hadn't been reached by the time they left office, and the way things are going uh, looks a lot way out of sight. Pensions, another plus. Pension credit, the minimum income that, uh, the maximum income that a, a pensioner could uh, be guaranteed, was guaranteed in 1997, was £69 a week. That rose to £130. A million pensioners were taken out of poverty as a result of Labour measures, more if they had claimed uh, the benefits that were uh, brought in. People always talked about the cradle-to-grave welfare state. There never was a cradle, but this government did at last provide uh, a service for the under-fives that had not existed before. Free nursery places for all three- and four-year-olds. A great, a great breakthrough. A sure start with the intention of catching families in trouble from the very youngest age, families of all sorts who might have all kinds of different problems from postnatal depression to serious social problems or addiction problems. If you can't turn around a family and get a child uh, ready to learn by the age of five, they've more or less had it by the time they get to school. Labour understood that, invested hugely in it. We're bouncing around because the story does go from black to white, from plus to minus. Uh, on the negative side, great promises made about improving the skill base of the United Kingdom labour force didn't happen. Some measures were put in, it didn't happen, and Richard Layard, not un unsympathetic to the government, uh, decided in conclusion that this was one of Labour's, quote, greatest failures. But then, on the other hand, education was a good story. Primary school funding went up by a third. The numbers of children who could read, write, add up by the time they reached 11 to the appropriate standard rose a great deal. Not enough, but nevertheless, it was a big jump upwards with the literacy and numeracy hour and with that investment. Secondary schools, again, a good story. The numbers of children who get their five uh, A to C GCSEs plus English and maths has gone up from 45% to 67%. That's an achievement. Uh, higher education expanded a great deal. Started, that expansion started by the Conservatives, continued by Labour, though this year, sadly, as we speak now, in clearing, a quarter of applicants will not find places.
Specific things hang there still. Fantastic to look at from the air. The Millennium Dome, a billion pounds of public expenditure to no uh, obvious purpose. The 2003 Licensing Act, again applicable in England rather than elsewhere in the United Kingdom, intended to introduce a cafe culture. A uh, committee of MPs before the election uh, looking at it said it had not diminished law and order problems, in fact probably increased in some areas binge drinking and had moved problems after uh, licensing hours ended slightly later into the night. And then Labour did a lot of things that seemed completely out of char character and didn't really fit in with what you would expect of a Labour government. Why were faith schools expanded in what is one of the most secular nations on earth and growing more so? Why was gambling encouraged? For the first time ever, gambling advertising allowed on television when we know how addictive and dangerous it is. What about super casinos? All right, there was great controversy about one, the biggest of all, which Gordon Brown did cancel when he came into power, but very little has been said about 16 bigger casinos than we've had until now under construction, even as we speak. Whatever the Daily Mail may say, the British Crime Survey is an objective and attested way of measuring people's experience of crime. And it recorded that crime, violent crime at least, fell by a third between 1997 and 2008. Uh, at the beginning of this year, it was the case that the likelihood of being the victim of crime was lower than at any time since records began, which in the case of the British Crime Survey meant since 1983. Prior to that, there were no reliable records. Not, not all of that falling crime is again attributable to increase in police numbers or measures taken by the previous government, but some of it was, and it's a fact of our contemporary lives together. Climate change. Uh, Labour was a great advocate abroad, encouraging other countries to take measures, but when you look at their actual record, again, when you strip away the intentions, the laws passed and the rhetoric, it's a pretty sorry, a pretty sorry tale. They promised a 20% cut in carbon emissions by 2010. They may perhaps have achieved five. Most of that will be due to the dash for gas conversion from coal or due to the recession itself and the drop in demand. Uh, green taxes actually fell as a proportion of the tax take. And sadly, the fuel escalator, which was something that the Conservatives under John Gummer brought in to increase the price of petrol to get people out of their cars every year, Labour actually stepped back from that and stopped it. Still on matters of environmental, the creation, now jeopardised by the coalition government, of the Food Standards Agency, a major step to improve the quality of the food arriving at supermarkets and on our tables. Again, for English people, the right to roam, the introduction of a statutory right of access to 3,200 square miles of upland areas of England, and followed or paralleling measures here in Scotland, a legislation to allow the creation of a right to walk along the literal co the coast uh, 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 of England. Again, unfortunately, a measure which the present government says it's going to abandon. Then we mustn't forget the New Deals. When Labour came in, it was an extraordinarily radical idea to take, have a windfall tax on the utilities that Thatcher had, had privatised too cheaply. Five billion pounds taken from that to the New Deals that really did get a lot of long-term unemployed young people back to work and, and greatly cut unemployment during those years. The introduction of the minimum wage was a real breakthrough. It's still not high enough. It's not a living wage. A family can't survive on it but some people were earning a pound an hour when Labour came to power. 
Again, I'm just going to zip through some other examples. I think you're getting the picture. Failure to increase productivity in the UK economy, the gap in terms of output per hour in the UK in 2010 against, say, France or Germany is the same now as it was in 1979. The almost complete absence of a coherent transport policy, despite John Prescott having said he wanted to get people out of private cars onto buses and trains, it uh, didn't happen. The exaggerated benefits of PFI. PFI not to be condemned absolutely, but it's left us with a situation where for £55 billion worth of capital investment in schools and waste plants and other infrastructure, the state, you, the taxpayer, is having to pay £217 billion. We're reading almost every week about new scandals, semi-scandals, or certainly a kind of cloud hanging over the financing of political parties. As bad as ever it was, there have been minor reforms, but Labour had the chance to say away with that. Let's have state funding of parties and a level playing field for everyone. Didn't do it. Uh, what about boardroom pay? Uh, not only was nothing done, but nothing was said. Not a word of criticism. And even now after the recession, we're seeing time and again FTSE 100 companies where boardroom pay is rising still by 20 to 30 percent year on year every year. And so on. We could cite, on a what might think a trivial level, the UK's medals tally at the Beijing Olympics a few years ago. <laughs> 47 medals, UK fourth in the world, a direct result of large increases in investments in sports by the Labour government. But, another part of the woods, the, the all, be, all but complete collapse of the ethical foreign policy that a certain distinguished uh, Scottish Labour MP, now dead, uh, had once promised, and the UK remaining the third or fourth largest arms exporter in the world. In the uh, years, five years to 2008, just to give you a figure, the US exported $63 billion worth of arms. The UK exported $53 billion worth. On Europe, Labour barely bothered. So there it is. You see why we found it so difficult to align the achievements and the disappointments. It's all apples and pears comparisons. But we've been following and trying to audit Labour's uh, progress right from the start, as Susan said. Our first book, looking at Labour, Did Things Get Better, was published in 2001. And it was, in retrospect, cool, cautious, but anxious to be persuaded that Blair's promises uh, that... Uh, he said to me in a private interview on several occasions, reminded me that, uh, like Thatcher, we would see the government's true intentions revealed in its second term. She didn't really come into her own till then. Blair promised he would. We did hope for better. But instead, what we got from Blair was a mindless repetition of promises to reform public, the public sector, provoking what now seem to be supremely irrelevant Labour Party rows over foundation hospitals and trust schools, and of course we got the foreign wars. Our second book, Better or Worse, Did Labour Deliver, was about the second term uh, up to 2005, and registered Labour's intense busyness in power, charted progress, yes, but never lost that note of disappointment. So big a majority they had, so little change as a result. And why that continued reliance on the intellectual capital of the 1990s, so little refreshment of ideas even as the world changed. The verdict is our final account, when you get to read it, I hope you will, uh, the first draft uh, of that Labour government's complete story. Well, we are naturally 
by nature, Labour sympathisers. There's no denying that. And no doubt we've given quite a lot of ammunition to Labour's, to Labour's enemies. But those enemies ought to take care. Some of Labour's failures are generic. They apply to all governments. Um, we kept coming across the pretensions of ministers as they arrived in their departments, uh, determined to pull on great big levers and make massive changes without realizing that often the levers weren't attached to anything underneath, nothing happened, or else there were unintended consequences. Um, they seemed so far away from the coalface, and they preferred to see things very often in abstract terms. You're seeing this government making exactly those errors, not being practical enough, not looking closely enough at how this actually impacts on people's everyday lives, preferring the isms to the actualities. We understand, and certainly they understand, very little about what's actually going on inside markets. If so, they might have predicted the crash, or inside families, or inside what's supposed to be called civil society. Uh, but the greatest problem of all is you, we, all of us, the public, we are very contrary in our, our attitudes, and we're very uh, infantile sometimes, and hopelessly contradictory in our demands. Of course, I don't mean all of you wise people who come to the Edinburgh Book Festival, but the book, I hope, will be a basis uh, for contemporary political argument and discussion about all of these very deep and essential problems. Here's the coalition now attacking Labour over the deficit. The great accusation is that Labour spent the money and left behind a, grape, a, a gaping debt. Well, is that a fair charge? Um, we have taken a very clear-eyed look at Labour's management of the economy. No one, I think, reading the book would see us being anything but perhaps bitterly critical of Gordon Brown's stewardship as Chancellor and then as Prime Minister. But although we argue strongly he could have confronted people with better with the choices between tax and spending prior to the crash, there is no question that the imbalance in the UK's public accounts now have in large measure to do with the rescue operation staged by that Labour government when the banks collapsed. There was no real alternative. And when you hear coalition ministers trying to say it was profligacy by Labour, which explains the financial straits we're in, bear in mind that not being the case. The case is that the bulk of the additional expenditure came from bailout. That said, again, we stress how Labour failed, and this applies to Ed Balls, Alistair Darling, and all the Labour MPs who backed him over the years, failed to confront the people of this country, us, you, with this conundrum, our desire for what you might call Scandinavian levels of public services, and our collective wish to pay what you might call transatlantic American levels uh, of taxation. That's what the polls said, and Labour never quite had the courage to lay in front of the people the choices involved in paying for an expansion, a vitally necessary expansion of services, uh, but at the price necessarily of some increase in taxation. We remember that when we were here before, we were asked a rather difficult question. We were talking about our book, Unjust Rewards, and we didn't really have any ready answer to those who said, well, since gross inequality has become so apparent under a Labour government, where do we turn for a progressive alternative? But now we have to say, well, hope springs eternal in writing this book. 
we wanted to offer a new Labour leadership, whoever that may be, a basis for recapitulating, for thinking again, for recalibrating, and for learning from the experience of the Labour's 13 years. Our verdict then, I suppose, is uh, Labour left behind a sprucer public realm, schools, hospitals, clinics, public spaces, sports venues, parks, museums, all renovated, mostly renovated, restocked, rebuilt. You can see that around us. Remember the adage of J.K. Calbraith about private affluence and public squalor. Plenty of the former, despite the recession, but much less of the latter. When we were writing it, um, it did seem that Labour had nudged the political centre of gravity in a social democratic direction on public services, income distribution and even on poverty. There Cameron was using the same language to lever himself into power. Didn't that prove that Labour had made a difference in uh, engaging with social justice? But now that we're into the slash and burn, uh, you have to wonder how much did they really change change the, the, the centre of where people stand. Last week, Nick Clegg was embarrassed by the IFS's finding that the budget, that the budget so far of this new government has been uh, regressive and has had a disproportionately bad effect on poor families. But nevertheless, it's not going to change their policies and hasn't so far all that much changed the opinion poll. The replacement of Labour with a cabinet of old Etonians and 18 multi-millionaires on the, on the front bench uh, suggests that um, things didn't change as much as, uh, uh, as we might have, have hoped at that time. There haven't been any great shifts of the tectonic plates in uh, Britain's social geology. Um, Labour didn't even break the hold of the few on, the mon on money, power and status. Labour did come to love money. Uh, on the political graves, Balls, Darling, Brown will be inscribed obsequious words they uttered about bankers and financiers. Perhaps they felt the UK economy had gone too far. Uh, finance was all there was now in the UK economy in the 21st century to generate export earnings and tax revenues. That was and is nonsense. But unless they believed it, why make the genuflection to the city and big finance? Even after the crash, there was a chance to start anew, but it seemed they couldn't break the habit. Even when other countries acted and opinion polls showed the British people wanted a tougher response to the finance sector, Labour brought in no new transaction, no transaction tax, no breakup of the banks, no assault on corporate incompetence, that's the phrase you have to use about what happened, nor spoke our collective outrage at the immediate resurrection by the banks of the bonus culture. You have to hope that Labour's um, new leader can look back on some of the reasons why so many chances for change were missed. The golden time when Labour had absolute power and a great deal of money for most of that time, could have done anything. Uh, next time, real electoral reform could liberate Labour from that paralysing fear that all hangs on, say, 200,000 votes of uh, Middle England voters in marginal seats. Next time, understanding that this is not necessarily a conservative country, Labour could put perhaps a more generous trust in British people's instinctive sense of social justice and willing to see justice done between the interests of those who've got too much power, money and privilege and those with little or none.
Polly David, thank you very much indeed. I'm astonished by how much you managed to distill in a very short period of time, and I think it's whetted all our appetites now to read the book. Now, we know from your previous visits to Edinburgh that Edinburgh audiences always have an awful lot of interest in what you have to say, and I'm sure with this topic in particular, they will have. So I'm going to hand over very quickly to you today, so be ready to put, put your hands up. I'm going to squeeze in just one question. You kicked off there with Iraq right at the top of your scorecard, if you like. If you could just take Iraq out of the equation, how do you think that would alter Labour's legacy? I think it would change things a lot. I think it was a sort of catalyst in which a lot of people who were dissatisfied with Labour for all sorts of reasons had a reason to say, right, that's it, I'm off. I'm not sure that it would make a huge difference. Labour lost five million votes between 97 and the last election. Uh, only one million of those votes went to the Conservatives. Four million went either to the Liberal Democrats, to the Nationalists, or to nowhere, or to the Greens. Um, I think those were votes Labour could have held on to, can bring back, without having to say we've got to move over into Cameron territory. Those were lost votes to be reclaimed. But I think an awful lot of them, Iraq, was just that pivotal moment. Maybe there would have been another one had it not been that. But there are an awful lot of Labour voters who just thought they'd been lied to. And they'd been lied to over something that really mattered. Okay. I'm going to resist the temptation to comment or question further. It's, it's difficult, let me tell you. But let's see the, the hands up in the audience here. And if, can the lights go up any further? Or these ones down a little so that I can see you? Okay, we'll take one right down at the front here and then over at the side. If you can just wait for the roving mic. Thank you. Uh, thank you both very much indeed. C can you just uh, say a bit more about the pensions hole, which is pretty stupendous? And, and I specifically have in mind, I think, Gordon Brown's first budget when he, shall we say, raided the pension funds by adjusting the tax. And I wonder if, if that actually was a major contributed factor, albeit perhaps an unintended consequence. But there is a pension problem. I'd like you to comment on it, please. There is a pension problem, but it's not of uh, recent origin. Uh, it's true in retrospect that the so-called raid on uh, pension fund uh, tax treatments in 1998-9 uh, might have been approached differently, but you have to bracket that with the so-called tax holiday, which the major government had given pension uh, providers, employers, uh, in the 1990s. There's a big gap in a number of... Uh, um, public, uh, private sector pension funds because the major government said we'll excuse you from making contributions of employers for a period of what amounted to, to five years. As a society we need quite obviously to have much more of an engaged discussion about how we pay for ageing. Ageing is a fact of our life as it is in most uh, Western countries. Um, whether Labour, Labour eventually began it. Um, there's no question that the Commission uh, established uh, under Lord Adair Turner began to move into consensual areas and identify ways in which the state, private employers, individual contributors might begin to produce a formula that would see us through into third, fourth, fifth decades of the 20th, uh, 21st century. Um, it's been dismaying, you might say, that the new government throw that away and may want to begin again, maybe not. It doesn't seem to have that urge to bring together. Um, but by and large, um, there are pluses for Labour, um, certainly in terms of the treatment of existing pensioners. Um, it had begun, although you wouldn't believe it from the press these days, to address 
problems, and there are problems, I have to say, as one, um, surrounding the payment of pensions to people who work uh, in the public sector and the balance, again, that's fair between employee contributions and uh, employer contributions. But I think if behind your question is, did Labour engage in as energetic a way with a big question which will require mobilisation of opinion and resource, I think the answer has to be no, it didn't. David, just while the microphone's moving over there, but on that, would you say, in your opinion, was the new Labour government any better or worse than governments before or possibly those that will come after in terms of proving to be unable or unwilling to address some of these big, difficult issues? The answer to that, again, takes you into the area of values. There is no question that, I mean, as Polly was saying, it's, it's been desperately difficult for us. One of Labour's initial concerns in addressing any such question was, how will policy impact on those who lack resources? How will policy impact on let's call it the bottom third of the income distribution. That was always in Labour's mind, but Labour's capacity in delivering policy to, to make that work, to deliver protections for those who lack means, didn't always realise itself. But certainly a distinction of Labour was that it did, it, it spoke about caring for those households which are uh, poorer. And that, I think, does fairly uh, distinguish it from its predecessors and indeed its successor. I very much doubt that this government will find a way to rebalance uh, the demands of a, of a large retiring population, the baby boomers, against the needs of a, of a smaller, young, uh, excluded young generation who may never own their own homes because we have made so much money out of the homes that we bought. And by, not, by failing to deal with that uh, housing boom, uh, house price boom, uh, Labour let wealth suck up from the bottom to the top, from the poor to the rich, but from the young to the old. So although some people feel hard done by, by their pensions, nothing compared to the future generation's pension problems. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not anti-New Labour, but I gave a very low answer to your hands up poll because Tony Blair personally, by ordering council, bypassed Parliament using the royal prerogative to give Alistair Campbell managerial control of civil servants. That enabled Campbell to chair the Joint Intelligence Committee and secure the deletion of various safeguards, various criticisms of the quality of the intelligence. The result is the loss of hundreds of British and American lives, probably hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives, and Afghanistan even more difficult than it was before. In other words, he's been responsible for making the world an even less safe place than it was before because the invasion of Iraq acted as a recruiting sergeant for fundamental terrorism. So that's why I voted against it. It's Iraq and the fact that Tony Blair is personally responsible for making the world a much less safe place and for the death of Dr. Kelly, a decent man. I think it was a disaster for us as well that we joined the Iraq war, but it would have happened even if he'd said no. He deluded himself that he was far more influential and important with the Americans than he was. He deluded himself that if he was there at George Bush's side, he would have an influence, which it's now been proved he didn't have at all. 
but the war would have happened anyway. So a lot of those deaths, not ours, but a lot of those deaths, Iraqi deaths, would have happened anyway. And the world would still be a less safe place as a result of it. But we ourselves, our own foreign policy, our own reputation, our own view of ourselves, and our own position perhaps in Europe, would be very different now if we'd chosen not to join that war. But again, you know, not addressing your point about the Iraq war, but your point about Alistair Campbell acquiring supervisory responsibilities over civil servants, you're right, and indeed the other person who acquired such rights was Jonathan Powell, the head of Blair's private office. But it has to be registered that on Labour's watch, for the first time, a civil service law was passed which gave the civil service as a corporate entity various legal protections. And if you look at the, from what we know of the conduct of the present cabinet secretary who served Labour's latter years, Sir Gusto O'Donnell, he didn't look like a man cowed by the experience of Labour years. He looked like a pretty traditional cabinet secretary willing to articulate the interests of public administration and good order in public administration with some aplomb. So you're absolutely right about that, e that episode where Blair thought he could ride roughshod over convention. But convention had a way, and this was encouraged by, for example, such Labour MPs as Tony Wright, the chair of the Public Administration Select Committee, to move back to a more ordered. So even though we had in Prime Minister Brown, I don't want to speak ill of a fellow Scot, a man who's emotional resilience was somewhat lacking. The system, partly willed by Labour ministers and MPs, did recover a certain degree of equilibrium as an administrative system. OK, let's see some more hands. Right, we've got a cluster in the middle here. I'll go right at the back. And just three rows back, the other women, three rows back. Just a question about Labour's as a relationship with the media, I'd be really interested to get a sense of how you think uh, their relationship was with the media and whether they did enough to ensure and safeguard, I suppose, unbiased and informed reporting for the rest of us. We cut this, very bit, good we point. Cut, we cut this bit out because <laughs> we we, we're going on too long. So, <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely right. If right from the beginning, with that triumphant victory in 97, with the entire country behind them, Labour had been bold enough to stand up, say, to Rupert Murdoch as a start, to say, we're now going to return to the media ownership laws that we had until Mrs. Thatcher swept them aside. We had media ownership laws, much like those which still exist in America, that pre prevent any one person from becoming dominant across media and owning too many newspapers. If He'd done that on the first day and saying, we're now going to go back, so we'll have to break up that empire, you'll have to sell off some newspapers, uh, you can't be in both newspapers and television. I think that would have made a big difference, and I think it would have sent out quite an electrifying message. I don't know what you do about the Daily Mail, because that doesn't apply to them. Nor do, uh, and the Daily Mail, I have to say, is a huge One dominant cultural force. One thing you don't do is invite force. the editor of the Daily Mail to the funeral of your son, which is what Gordon Brown did, an act of symbolic... Daughter. Daughter. Uh, yes. And I think, and, and what's more, Gordon Brown saw a lot of Paul Dacre, and Paul Dacre gave him a great deal of support. And I find that very shocking because, in the end, of course, it came to nothing. In the end, the Daily Mail turned against him that wooing these people gets you nowhere at all. And I think you earn a great deal of respect from people by standing up to them and saying, I'm not going to pay any attention. It is very frightening. I mean, I don't know. I suspect a lot of you are leader on the whole, readers on the whole of serious and better newspapers, like The Guardian. Um, <laughs> but, 
But uh, if you read them all every day, if you are sitting there in Downing Street and there is the Mail and the Sun, you know, and all of you ought to look at those papers from time to time just to see the battery and assault that a, a Labour government always gets, it is pretty alarming and pretty terrifying and quite easy to be blown off course. But of course, it wasn't just the press. Uh, Labour was very devoted to the focus group, to the work of Philip Gould, telling them all the time what people were thinking and the people who were reading those newspapers were repeating them back in the focus groups, forgetting that a leader can lead, that you can say, uh, no, it's not like that, it's like this, follow me, this is the way we're going to go. We will have nothing to do with those editorials in the Sun and the Mail uh, and so on. And I think that um, it was extraordinary that Labour came to power still with so many scars from 1992, so terrified, so afraid, believing that power was going to be snatched from them at any moment. And even after they won again magnificently in 2001, still terrified of their own shadow, never really having the confidence to believe that they had the power and authority and the goodwill of the people that they really did have. And Polly, you do repeatedly return to this issue of missed opportunities, a lack of confidence. How far do you go in, in trying to speculate yourselves as to where that derived from? What, what, I mean, what we found, uh, mentioned this very, very puzzling, was it, as the century turned, new problems emerged, 9-11 you know, saw, I mean, whether we liked it or not, Blair responding to this event without any kind of bringing any baggage to it. Labour remaining committed to ideas, for example, about the balance between the public sector and private contractors, uh, the fear of the press, ideas which had been generated in, that, in the dark days of Labour's period in opposition in the late 80s and early 90s, it seemed unable, despite the creation of uh, advisory groups within government, to refresh itself, to bring to bear sort of new thoughts. And you'd have thought over time its confidence in office would have grown. And that was the, you know, a phenomenon here in, uh, in the Parliament in Scotland. But instead, this, this nervousness, this... Uh, reactive reactivities it seemed to grow. Yeah, thank you. Has the microphone found its way down to here? <laughs> Excellent. Then we'll move over this side. The woman up the back. Thank you. You got it along? Uh, well, thank you very much again for all these uh, facts. They're all very detailed, and I think that's exactly what what the press should be doing, uh, being critical. But let me play the devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, I, I totally agree, I think everyone does, with the disaster of the Iraq war, the embarrassing conflicts at the summit, Blair Brown, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that um, there are a lot of valuable things Labour has been doing during this past 13 years. And I think it would be unfair to, to forget about, you know, um, the, the IRA uh, peace process going on, uh, educational uh, improvements, at least in primary school, and as you, you've all mentioned those already, the um, uh, excellent managing of cultural affairs. Um, don't you think that it's, it, we, have, we have at the basis a more general problem which actually touches all political fronts, left, right, and, and center, which is maybe, um, a lack of values in general, and the belief that Machiavelli's philosophy that the, the aim justifies the means is taking over, really. Um, and, uh, Question, please. 
Sorry. If you could bring your question to a close. Yes. Uh, no. I was just. I was just. Um, I was just wondering whether you realize the big difference uh, there is in between the the Labour government in in Britain and other European countries where things go terribly wrong after 14 or 13 or 12 years of government. Well, you're quite right. I mean, being in power for 13 years, it's very difficult for any government not to seem weary, exhausted. I think a lot of the ministers, by the time they left office, were really drained of ideas and verve and energy. But I think we've been very careful in our book. And one of the purposes of our book is to record what was good as well. This is not a, you know, this is not, not, not some kind of devastating critique at all. Partly because as we go on and weekly, more and more good programs, good schemes, good things are being cut. It's very important that we have recorded them. You know, who will remember Connections? Connections is a very valuable service. I don't know if you have it in Scotland for, for, for youth. It spans the sort of needs and children between school and going on to maybe apprenticeships or, or colleges. Um, an advice service for sort of distressed teenagers, but for all teenagers as well, plus a careers advice service. Something perhaps not used very often by opinion formers who don't know and won't notice when it's gone. There are loads of schemes like that. There is a whole teenage pregnancy prevention program that has just been axed well, teenage pregnancies will rise. They fell under labor, not as much as they hoped, but they did fall quite sharply. Uh, all sorts of plans and programs are being stripped out now that we hope that we've captured and recorded and monitored their results and be able to say, this worked, that didn't work so well. In future, perhaps another labor government will go back and pick up some of these again and say, we did that and it worked well and we'll do it again. So we have been very anxious to capture the positive as well and in you know, five years' time, we're going to look back perhaps with much uh, rosier spectacles on what went before. And we're going to see that that was perhaps more of a golden time than it feels now immediately after an election where we're angry at what they got wrong. And our colleague makes uh, implicitly a sort of obvious point, and we should all bear it in mind. If you look across the rest of Europe, it hasn't been a golden era for leadership. I mean, uh, a social democratic government in Germany led by Gerhard Schröder fell in rather ignominious circumstances. Jacques Chirac wasn't the greatest president of France, and some people might be critical of his successor. If you're an Italian, you might head, hold your head in shame <laughs> over the antics of... Uh, uh, Prime Minister of Italy uh, and so on. So it's very important, you're absolutely right, to put the performance of the UK government in an international uh, context, uh, absolutely. And that question of values, which you have kept returning to, I mean, again, how much do you feel that new labour was a product of its time, if you like, um, and how much do you observe that these are shifts that are taking place across the political spectrum, both at home and abroad? I think it was very much a product of its time, but it was a time when it said we have to put our values to one side because we'll never be elected. We've lost four elections. We didn't expect to lose that last one. We will never be elected again if we allow our values to guide us too much. So they trained themselves not to listen to their values. They trained themselves to look at the focus groups instead, and they believed that that's why they'd got into power. The odd thing was that I sensed in, in 97 already that the people were ahead of where Labour was. And when Tony Blair stood up and said, we were elected as new Labour, we will govern as new Labour, as a kind of admonition to anybody who might hope for more than what was a very minimal manifesto. Uh, I think by then people were already, or enough people, you know, it only needs to take 
50%, you never mind about 30%, we're always going to vote Conservative. Enough people were behind Labour and would have supported a more radical programme even then. Uh, but somehow, uh, Blair Brown Mandelson project never allowed themselves to think that because that's what they trained themselves to be. I'm conscious of hearing various positive mutterings in the audience in that front, but as somebody said earlier, we're in Scotland, of course, as well now. Yes, right thank there. you. you have the microphone, yeah. uh, one issue I was surprised didn't make it onto your inventory was that of um, sexual e uh, gender inequality. And I'd be very interested to know your judgment on the efforts of Harriet Harman in particular to insist that issues of domestic violence, the uh, position of rape in the criminal justice system, um, inequality in the workplace, and particularly unequal pay, stayed somewhere on the public agenda. And I plead guilty because we did have a, a section on the Equalities Act, but uh, on the grounds of trying to... We'd still be doing the list if we had it all in there, it's true. I think Harriet Harman has played a blinder on this, and she's taken a big hit personally and regarded as not a serious person because whatever anybody else has said, she has stuck to it. And they oh, she's always whinging on about women. And she did it from her very first speech in the Commons when she first came into the Commons, heavily pregnant, got up and took a, talked about mothers and children and women and was immediately dismissed as a lightweight as a result, uh, despite being heavily pregnant. Um, <laughs> and I think that she's absolutely admirable for that. What's interesting now is that her final act, which was treated with great contempt by Labour as well as Conservatives, though everybody voted for it, including the Conservatives, the very last act that Labour passed, passed the Equalities Act, is now coming into its own because it turns out that the Tories didn't realise when they voted for it or didn't take it into account seriously enough that every single piece of legislation they passed has to go through a consultation process where it says what its impact will be. It doesn't mean that its impact has to be good, but they have to acknowledge in public what its impact will be on women, on ethnic minorities, on disadvantaged groups, on disabled people. And that's brilliant. And it's going to trip them up time and time again because they'll have to say, we're doing this, but we know that it will have a terrible effect on all these people. So I think, um, I think that's been good. I mean, I can't say, that, I mean, I'm disappointed that the pay gap has not been narrowed more under, in Labour's time. It has a bit, but not enough. Okay, we've covered a phenomenal amount of ground, but our time is drawing to a close. So let's take a question from over here and we'll see if we have time for one last one. Yep, your hand is up. Excellent. Um, to what extent would you say the success of the new Labour image contributed to uh, the rise of, or David Cameron's rebranding of the Con Conservative Party and their success um, after this? Yeah. Oh, I think, um, I think he, he took their playbook, absolutely. You know, he took the red rose that Peter Mandelson had invented and he created his green oak tree. We don't hear very much about Vote Blue Go Green these days, but nevertheless, there it was. I think it was quite extraordinary and breathtaking, the steps he took, hug a hoodie, out there with the huskies. Um, she's, she's being immodest because one of the Tory shadows, uh, Greg Clark, actually said at one point, to the disgust it has to be said of some of his Tory colleagues, the person we should be following in our thinking about social policy is... <laughs> well, I know, and I felt like one of the huskies. I didn't ask to be hugged. Um, 
they didn't ask me. But then Cameron said, oh, yes, I think that's very use some of, some of my imagery. But then, of course, he said, well, I don't really believe in this mechanical business about inequality of the Gini coefficient and those measurements, he said. Well, of course, the measurements of inequality are what's crucial in showing what's actually going on. I think it was a most extraordinarily bold, daring, and outrageous uh, example of, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And now we're seeing the real effects because in the end, you judge a government by its budgets. That's all there is in the end of the day. It's where it puts its money, into what programs, into what schemes, into what priorities. Everything else is talk. It's follow the money. And if you follow the money with labor, they didn't do too badly. If you follow the money that's where it's flowing now, you look back and labor looks considerably better. So given all that analysis and all the work that you've done around this, have you actually shared with us yet the number that you've given <laughs> to the new Labour? Well, I have to say I was utterly gratified by the, uh, your, uh, your number because, in fact, we, you know, gun to the head, back to the wall, came up with 60%, 6 out of 10 as our, our broad summation, which seemed broadly to accord with the majority of the fault here. That was rather a relief. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we'd give you at least 9 out of 10 for what you've shared with us today. And thank you very much indeed. Thank you. word before we all exit now as Pauline David has explained the verdict is out at the beginning of October but isn't quite here yet although I do know some online um, operations are able, allow you to pre-order it now so that may be of interest to some of you um, however unjust rewards that we've referred to here today and I would certainly recommend um, to you is available in the bookshop as are Pauline and David if you'd like to speak to them further and of course get a signed copy um, of this publication so thank you very much for being a terrific audience and thanks again to you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.